0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Recognition by the U.S. government is a complicated subject for indigenous people who have historically inhabited two countries. This week, we're talking with two Southern Arizona tribes about how their sovereignty and way of life is complicated by living on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. Tribes that are federally recognized have a formal relationship with the United States and can receive funding and services like health care and education from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. AZPM's Indigenous Communities reporter Emma Gibson talked with Pasqua Yaki chairman Robert Valencia about how his tribe gained federal recognition in the 1970s. So we got the land in
1: '64. Uh, it was formerly a BLM, land, Bureau of Land Management, and uh, although it's way out here in the desert, uh, it was something that we hadn't had before us, uh, any type of land track. So the years that uh, ensued um, got us to the point where we were looking for federal recognition, uh, which we tried once, twice, and were successful the second time in 1978, and September 18th of 1978, and that took a lot of work uh, to convince Congress that uh, we were worthy of federal recognition. We had to demonstrate that we had uh, our own language, our own uh, customs, traditions, uh, that we continue to practice to this day. and. Those things are the most important elements that we have uh, as Yaqui people is our our traditional culture and and customs. When we got the recognition, we had the support of the Hopi tribe who actually wrote a letter in support of of us to be recognized. In speaking with our uh, tribal leaders um, in past years, what they indicated is that before there was the U.S., Mexico, or Canada, And before the Spanish, our people were involved in trade. We uh, were pretty much uh, in the southern Arizona region, except that, for the most part, people didn't know we were here. (laughs) Part of the trade that we brought from what is now Mexico, we have 80 kilometers of coastal waters where our people presently live about 375 miles um, in Ruyaki, in what is now Sonora Mexico. So they would bring the shells, the feathers, the parrot feathers, and such. So we took up to trade for other other things that the Hopi had. So our people have always felt um, we've had the very sovereign and inherent right of mobility. We went everywhere. We continued to go everywhere. The fact that uh, 9-11 occurred made it a little bit more difficult. But uh, prior to that, we were going back and forth. Um, to what is, again, our Rio Yaqui region, 375 miles away. And we participate on, on, in their ceremonies. They come up here for ours, And, you know, the border that exists is for us an artificial type of a, a border. We predated anything that was here. And, uh, you know, that's the essential part of uh, the identity of the Yaki people is uh, we're still here. And we fought to be here.
2: So, as I understand it, though, that main hub is in Sonora, Mexico. Is that right?
1: Here in the U.S., we have approximately 22,000 tribal members. In what is now Mexico, there's probably double that population. In the traditional homelands, you know, we have our presence here. You know, these are our homelands as well.
2: But there was some form of migration, correct, from Sonora in up into southern Arizona?
1: We believe we have been here like forever in a day. And, you know, one of the things that's missing is um, our own uh, version of what our history is and our presence. And everyone writes uh, about us as if we didn't exist before then. And seriously, it really offends us when that is, um, you know, people are casting that um, type of light on us.
2: Since those trading paths did cross water, now two countries, how did the government handle that? Was it a difficult process to get federally recognized? You said it took two attempts.
1: It was extremely difficult. Um, one, the Bureau at the time was trying to uh, change the uh, uh, requirements for uh, the approval process. And we were one of the last tribes to be recognized under the old uh, rules, you might say. We had to show that we're Indian in order to be recognized, which is sounds kind of, you know.
2: It sounds disrespectful.
1: Yes. And we had to prove the fact that we have what we have. So that was the most difficult part because you you do realize that uh, people that um, congressional people uh, have a limited knowledge space of uh, American Indians or Indians in general. And... Uh, you know, so that, that was part of the, the thing is um, we need to educate people. We need to um, let them know who we were.
2: We've touched on this. This concept you hear from historians that the Yaqui are indigenous, but they're foreign to the United States of America. How do you respond to that when you hear that?
1: It, it really irritates me because, as I t- said before, uh, we've been here. Just people didn't know we are here or they disavowed our presence. And, uh, you know, part of it was, uh, on the defense of nature, we didn't want people to know that we're here and because sometimes <laughs> that might be our undoing. So, <clears throat> you know, when um, the young people asked me, well, why don't we have, uh, like, uh, jewelry-making, uh, uh, basketry, and all these other crafts that other tribes have, and I had to tell them, you have to remember that <clears throat> we were kind of a, going in a really rapid linear fashion. We had no time to look back. We had people uh, hunting us like animals and, and such. And that's you know that's why we have very only very utilitarian type of uh, items that we that we produce. But you know essentially that is um, you know that is something that uh, that uh, we'll get to in due time the
2: Yaqui communities in Arizona and in other states have popped up into smaller communities as well as the reservation here in New Pasqua right outside of Tucson. How has the tribe exerted its sovereignty here in New Pasqua and in these communities that are dotted across the United States?
1: Part of what we fought for is to Established uh, our own codes, our own courts, our own uh, law enforcement. Uh, and to the extent that uh, one of our ceremonial societies um, that, uh, that is more prevalent during the Easter season, they exert the concept of Yaqui law, which means that their domain is, uh, is very significant. So that if somebody, there's a, a transgressor or a transgressor, or somebody who wants to interrupt the ceremonies. They act on that. So if they want to turn them over to the police, they can. If they want to do traditional forms of punishment, they can. So that is one of the, you know, the last remnants of, uh, you know, what we are able to do. And, uh, And we say, you know, when you enter this reservation, you have to respect the ceremonies, you have to respect the laws that we have. And if not, you know, there are consequences for those actions. And that is, uh, you know, why we try to teach our kids is that sovereignty means a lot of things, but in order to act sovereign, you you have to look at the, you know, everything that is ours and what we have to protect. In one instance, uh, even though this was off reservation, um, we had to put a stop to a play that was in California where they were using... Our cultural, uh, one of our cultural societies, in a play that uh, we felt compelled that uh, it was inappropriate. They were making masks that uh, you know it was so terrible for our elders to be present there when we took them. They were, they almost cried because they they just saw that uh, there was no uh, there was no uh, sanctity, there was no uh, respect for our people, and someone just felt that they could just pull these things out and you know. We had to go out. We—I um, uh, was the chair at the time, and you know, I, I especially wanted to take some of the younger cultural leaders so they could understand what it means to protect what we—the little bit of things that we have. And we did. We were successful. He put a stop to the uh, use of the uh, cultural items. We took them back. We confiscated them, and uh, that was a classic case of defending what little bit you have.
2: Well, thank you so much, Chairman Valencia, for joining me here today. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. That was Pasqua Yaqui Chairman Robert Valencia talking with Emma Gibson. Historian Brendan Rensink wrote the book Native But Foreign, which focuses on the history of the Yaqui and other cross-border tribes. His book explores the ways national borders affect the indigenous peoples who inhabited those lands before borders existed, and what it means to be indigenous or an immigrant. Rensink says during the last few centuries, the Yaqui traveled to what is now Arizona in part for economic reasons.
3: They came up um, very early on with Spanish missionaries. Later in the 1800s, they were expanding greatly, participating in mining all across the American Southwest. And as as expert miners, they ranged well up into Arizona.
0: So a lot of why they were here later on, uh, obviously, um, in the seventeen, eighteen hundreds 1800s, was economic uh, for jobs in mining?
3: Yeah, mining. And then in, towards the late 19th century, they were skilled workers in all kinds of heavy industries, such as uh, the building of railroads, irrigation canals. Um, once we get into the late 19th and early 20th century, many of them shifted towards agricultural labor. But they were a, a prized and skilled workforce
0: across Arizona. People here in Tucson will know the name Pascua Yaqui. We're talking about the Yaqui. What's the difference between the Yaqui and the Pascua Yaqui?
3: So the Yaqui's at at New Pascua, and there are also Yaqui communities uh, in Guadalupe, up next to Tempe and some other places up in Phoenix. Um, These are Yaqui communities who, um, over the course of decades, came up into Arizona. Some of them, some of those early economic envoys coming up and working in Arizona, but that were joined later in the late 19th and early 20th century by ways of Yaquis who came as political refugees who were fleeing violence in Sonora, um, fleeing extermination, enslavement, and deportation by the Mexican government. And those groups came up and settled in Arizona as well, often settling with the existing Yaqui communities. And uh, eventually these communities start to form official relationships with the U.S. federal government and in 1978 succeeded in securing federal tribal recognition as American Indians.
0: Some will ask, why did it take so long? Why did it take until the 1970s to be federally recognized?
3: It's an excellent question, because for many of them, for some families, it was over 100 years of living in Arizona as a distinct and unique indigenous community, but not being recognized by the U.S. federal government as American Indians. The federal government has never been in the business of creating new Indian tribes. They've never been eager to do that. And so, for much of their experience in Arizona, they were labeled as foreign Indians and denied participation in that system. Uh, many of them were also ignored because they had been successful in uh, economically in terms of finding jobs, um, which had allowed them to build somewhat stable communities, neighborhoods, even if they didn't often do did not own the land on which they lived. They were able to form some kind of um, some stable communities which in a a cruel way allowed many Arizonans and the surrounding communities to ignore the real problems and challenges they were facing.
0: You mentioned the phrase foreign Indians and the Yaqui were largely from Mexico. Did racism affect the perception of the Yaqui tribe and the relations uh, here in the U.S. with the Yaquis?
3: This is a difficult question to answer. Um, When Americans viewed incoming migrant groups uh, coming across the southern border, they, they often did not differentiate between uh, Mexican immigrants versus these Mexican Indian, these Yaqui immigrants. Many Americans didn't see much difference there. But as the story goes on, more and more of these Yaquis, even if their ancestors had been born in Mexico, more and more of them were born in the United States, so they're American-born citizens And once we get into, into the 20th century. But there was, I mean, all of the racism that other Mexican immigrant communities faced in Arizona, Yaquis did as well, and sometimes compounded by the fact that they uh, were natives and had a, somewhat of a reputation in Arizona for being um, defiant and, and strong and independent Will They had, the Yaquis had fought war after war with Mexico, which is what had driven many of them north. So uh, sometimes the general racism against Mexican immigrants was compounded by Their their unique indigenous identity.
0: Because the Yaqui were so successful at mining and integrating themselves into Arizona, were they a little bit of a victim of their own success in getting recognized by the federal government and other issues?
3: In in a way, yes. Um, My book compares their experience with a group in Montana who came down from Canada, um, Crees and Chippewas, who did not Successfully integrate into the economy. The economic skills they had did not contribute directly to kind of the, the industrial development and building up of the territory and state of Montana. So they were homeless and wandering, and in a way that led Montana to push for their recognition and them getting a reservation earlier, uh, because they wanted to to get rid of this the perceived problem of these wandering homeless Indians. Whereas Yaquis did not face that. they, And when we use the term successful, they still had a lot of very serious problems and challenges. But they had been able to forge some stability for communities and families, which, which yes, cruelly allows them to be ignored for much, much longer.
0: When we talk about border crossing now, especially, for example, people fleeing war as the Yaqui did coming to the U.S., the response is not overly universally welcoming all the time. Is there anything we can learn from the Yaki experience?
3: Uh, There's a lot we can learn from these histories. These were people who were fleeing uh, not just persecution, but um, extreme violence and death. And when they entered the United States, they they were concerned about whether or not they were going to be deported, whether or not they would be detained at the border. So many of them uh, slipped across the border unnoticed and went north and joined um, Yaqui families and friends and relatives. And it led to um, lives of uncertainty, of fear, of of paranoia, of never quite knowing what their status in the United States was. Um, Some had been given official legal protections. Others had not. And as immigration laws changed, it just made for very complicated understandings of what their standing in the United States was. And sadly, it was, it was quite unnecessary. Measures could have been taken to make clear um, what kind of protections they were over not being given. and would have allowed them to live much more stable lives with less worrying about their legality in the United States.
0: Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us.
3: It was my pleasure.
0: That was Brendan Rensink, an associate professor of history at Brigham Young University. This week we're talking with southern Arizona tribes about some of the complexities presented by U.S. federal recognition and the experience of living on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. The Thona Nation is bisected by the U.S.-Mexico border. The U.S. established the Thana Otham Nation reservation west of Lukeville, Arizona in 1917. After the Navajo Nation near the Four Corners, it's the second largest reservation in the country. AZPM's indigenous communities reporter, Emma Gibson, talked with Dwayne Pierce, a history instructor at the Thana Otham Community College. She asked about the tribe's experience being split by an international border. Pierce says political views in the nation's capital of Sells, Arizona, don't always represent those in other Thana Otham villages.
4: Most Autham people still have their loyalties to their own communities first. And look at cells as something different and not as important as your village politics, shall we say?
2: And I've also heard that maybe federal recognition didn't really change the U.S. Thawathon relationship back in the day.
4: No, just because the uh, people were recognized as the United States tribe. Didn't have that much effect on the Autumn people, from what I've read, that they just continued life as usual. They had their alliances and relationships with the people they had before the recognition. So it really was a non event, whereas in today's world it would be something. But back then, I don't believe it was.
2: What is the Thonotham Nation's experience as a transnational nation?
4: The border is kind of like an imaginary line for the Autumn people because the whole thing was Autumn uh, Hajiotika, you know, Autumn land stretching from the Gila River down to the Sonora River. So that is how a lot of the Autumn saw it probably until maybe the 50s or 60s. I think most autumn people do not think of themselves as a transnational uh, entity of any kind. The desert is the same on this side as it is on that side. Their villages on here look very similar to the villages over there. I believe that a lot of autumn people do not get too involved with uh, a term like binational entity or whatever. So even though it is on paper, the people themselves, I don't think, quite pay attention to that.
2: What do they pay attention to? You know, what's the reality?
4: The reality is that it's difficult for them to go back and visit relatives on the other side or go to the communities on that side that hold uh, specific uh, ceremonies that are conducted every year. Whereas before, you could just drive through one of the points of entry and go without any hassles. Now, I believe on the reservation itself, all those points are closed. So you have to go off, go all the way around to Lukeville and then go drive east again towards those areas that were maybe 20 miles from your home village. It's now a hundred and something. So in that respect, you know, that's a problem that this thing, the line, the border, has caused for the Alton people.
2: And so you've kind of told us some of the cons of this border. You know, are there any pros?
4: The education system is better up here uh, in the United States. From what I understand, the Sonoran government is trying to rectify that in Sonora by providing um, better education for the people down there, as you know, in Mexico, when Mexico got its independence from Spain, they made everyone a citizen. So there were no special designations for the native people there. So they were all considered Mexican citizens, supposed to have equal rights, but that doesn't always pan out and certainly didn't in Sonora. So the education that was provided was very substandard and many Sonoran Authams felt that it would be best to send their children up into the United States to go to school, either at a boarding school or wherever. Back then, there were no schools on the reservation except Catholic schools.
2: Is there a lot of this back and forth movement between families for, you know, education and maybe some other things like health care?
4: people in Sonora have membership. With the Tohana Autumn Nation. They have a tribal ID card. So theoretically, they they have the same rights as Autumn in the United States. But uh, again, you have to have transportation to go all the way to Lukeville, come up to Aho, and then drive all the way to Sales. That has its logistical problems as well. That's current. Back maybe even 40, 50 years ago, a lot of all of them from Sonora will come up as seasonal workers to the Stanfield area and work the cotton fields and work in there. And then after the season, they would go back. But that was the time when it was easier to cross closer to your village without going way out of the way.
2: As a history instructor, how do you teach your students about how 9-11 affected the thonotham Nation?
4: I've been trying to highlight in my classes that 9-11 of course was a very big and horrendous event and that it had repercussions over here with the increased worry about terrorists coming across. And uh, I tell the students that many all of them probably supported because the images we saw on TV of those, all the attacks and stuff was just mind-boggling people just could not believe people would do something like that so yeah at the beginning they would have been accepting of measures to stem the entry of people into the united states they didn't realize they would uh, impact them as well you know that they would be considered if they lived on that side as foreigners you know that's a kind of strange concept to all some people to be foreigners in your own land.
2: We've been talking about all these issues that come with being an indigenous nation that's split by the US and the Mexican border, but how does sovereignty factor into this conversation and this juggling?
4: That's a question I ask my students a lot. We're supposed to be a sovereign nation and yet it's we're still controlled by outside forces both on this side and on the Sonoran side. I present that to my students. To me, sovereignty is a nice, pretty word, and that's it, because things are controlled elsewhere.
2: What should sovereignty be to you?
4: Sovereignty should be where the nation does have real control over their borders and over their people. Sovereignty should include the Autumn and their lands in Sonora, northern Sonora. True, you know, most of Sonora used to be Autumn land, but it is not that way anymore. But the northern part still has communities with a large number of Autumn people. Well, now we have border patrol all over the place. And if the tribe were truly sovereign, they would do something else so we don't have those white and green trucks going through every village and disrupting daily life and kind of just giving the autumn a sense that, sovereign, huh? (laughs) You know, and we have these people around who are watching us. Now there's going to be towers. It doesn't feel like we're very sovereign.
0: That was Donna Otham historian Dwayne Pierce talking with AZPM's Emma Gibson. And that's The Buzz for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about the Broadway Widening Project and the Sunshine Mile. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.
2: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.